0: She's living her best life. How many of you heard that phrase before? A few of you? I I just started hearing this phrase recently, like in the last year. Um, I'm, I'm not on social media, so I tend to be late to trends. But apparently this phrase started to gain traction several years ago on social media, and it was common for people to hashtag themselves, living my best life. Right, you've probably seen those posts. It's like the picture of someone on the beach with their toes in the sand and their favorite book. And it's like, hashtag, living my best life. Or it's not just like moments of enjoyment and pleasure. Sometimes it's achievement. Right? You see the post that's like, was up at 6 a.m., pounded my breakfast, got my run in, killing it at work, living my best life. Right? like This is the mantra that we kind of have. And nobody really knows where this phrase kind of originated from. Some point back to a book in the 2000s that Oprah wrote called Live Your Best Life. Um, but it's really just kind of seeped into our cultural vernacular. Even, it's, even in such a way I find myself sometimes just in moments of enjoyment being like, I am living my best life. Like, right, like we just kind of take it for granted. But what exactly is living your best life? What, like, What do we mean by that phrase that we use so often? Heather Snowden is a senior editor at a website called High Snobriety, And she asked the same question in a blog that was published a few years ago. And actually, if you go and search online for Live Your Best Life Origin, her article is one of the top hits that you come to. And this is how she describes what it mean mean when we say living your best life. She says, what actually is, your, is our best life and how do we live it? The most important word in the phrase, live your best life, is your Strip away the Instagram filters and look at your own values objectively and with honesty. Figure out what's most important to you. What matters on an achievable level and go from there. What do you need to do to be satisfied with your life? Once you've figured that out, set some goals. Hate your busy city life? Then make time on the weekends to escape to the country. Don't reap energizing rewards from your job. Do something about it. Take tiny steps to inject things you like into your workplace, set new goals, talk to your boss about new responsibilities or look for something new. Take a class, learn a skill, take up a new sport or hobby. Everything is within your control. I think Snowden's idea of your best life could be summed up in the simple phrase, do what makes you happy. You have the control. You have the ability. So figure out what you want most and go for that. If it doesn't make you happy, change it. Do something about it. I love the honesty in her statement right at the beginning, right? The most important word in the phrase, live your best life, is your. You're the definer of your happiness. And it's in your control to pursue it. For many in our world, this is just the simple assumption yeah, of course I'm supposed to live my best life. And is living your best life, is doing what makes you happy the best way to live? One of the questions we've been asking throughout this series that we've been engaging is what is the good life? What is the life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction that all of our hearts long for, that we desire? And phrases like live your best life and do what makes you happy man, they sound like that should be right, right? That you get to define your happiness, that what you feel is what should drive your life. As long as it doesn't end up hurting anyone else, man, live your best life. But does that really measure up as a sufficient way to live? Is that what defines a meaningful and purposeful and satisfying life, If you're just joining us, we're in the third week of a series that we've called Smoke and Mirrors. We've been looking through the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is an old book of ancient Hebrew wisdom. It centers around the quest of the preacher. He's the central figure in the book. And the preacher sets out, as we see at the beginning of the book, on a quest. He wants to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. But as he sets out on this quest, he controls his quest to life under the sun. His search is for meaning in a secular world, a world where God is taken out of the equation and religious concerns are not factored in. He wants to look at what he can see and touch and know and see, will that satisfy my life? So the preacher starts his journey by looking for meaning in nature and he observes all the things that are around him he looks outside of himself at the world but at the end of the day he draws the reality that ultimately because of the repetitive cycles of nature because of the endlessness of time and the blip on the radar that we are that finding meaning in nature is vanity it's meaningless so he turns from the outside to the inside and he begins to explore and think maybe meaning is found in my mind maybe it's found in my knowledge and wisdom But as we saw last week, he finds those things insufficient for finding a life of meaning. For he finds that he can't solve life's problems with wisdom and knowledge. And that really, the more knowledge he gains, the more sorrow increased. So he again concludes, wisdom and knowledge is meaningless. But today, as we step into chapter two of the book, the preacher now turns from seeking meaning in the mind to now seeking for meaning in his gut, to look at what he desires, to look at what makes him happy, and to see if that's where meaning ultimately can be found. If you're with me in Ecclesiastes chapter two, we're going to pick it up in verse one, and I want to see you to see the turn that he makes in the text he says this in chapter 2 verse 1 he said i said in my heart come now i will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself see he now turns and he says i'm gonna test my own heart the center of my being i'm gonna look for my meaning and and what i'm gonna look for is i'm ultimately test my heart with pleasure i'm gonna look for what makes me happy And I'm going to see if that's good. That little phrase that we translate, enjoy yourself, could be literally translated to see good. He wants to know if a life of pleasure-seeking, of self-indulgence, will lead to the good life, to the life our hearts long for. And so he decides that he's going to walk the path of doing what makes you happy. This is his test. I would call it the hedonistic test. Hedonism is the philosophy of life that really the preacher adopts here. It comes from the ancient Greek word hedone, which is the word for pleasure. And hedonism is simply the idea that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. It breaks the world down into two opposing poles, what brings you pleasure and what brings you pain. And hedonism essentially says all that is good in life is found in the pursuit of pleasure and the rejection or minimalization of pain. Therefore, if we're to discover the good life, hedonism says we must pursue pleasure at all costs to go after what makes us happy. And in a secular world, it means the pleasures in life that we can enjoy. So the preacher sets off on his quest, and over the next seven verses, he begins to lay out his journey. He says, I said of laughter it is mad, and pleasure what use is it? But then in verse three, he says, I search with my heart. So here he begins his search, To look after, and he essentially wants us now to look at his life and say, I want you to observe my search for pleasure. He walks us through these moments, these things he had in his life, and says, Look at what I have. When I was um, growing up, there was this show I used to like to watch called MTV Cribs. I don't know if you guys ever remember that show. But it was this show on MTV and what they would do is they would, they would find some famous, well-known, wealthy celebrity and they would go and they would spend a day filming them touring through their house. And you would like watch the show and you would see their like giant televisions and entertainment centers and whatever crazy cars they had and all their stuff and you, you would just sit there. I remember as a kid like oogling it like, oh man, that's awesome. I wish I had that. I wish I had that. Like these people have the life. The, the, The preacher's essentially going to take us for the next seven version on his version of MTV Cribs. He's like, I'm going to invite you in, and I want you to kind of oogle at my life. I want you to see this journey of pleasure that I am taking. And so he kind of walks us through these key maybe rooms or parts of his life to say, this is all the places that, man, I indulged myself The first room that the preacher takes us to is he he actually says, On my way to visit our house, let's first stop at the bar and grab a drink. Right? Look at verse three. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. Now, the preacher's not an overindulgent alcoholic. No, he still keeps his wits about him in the verse. Man, but if you're going to seek pleasure, it's not a bad idea to take the edge off. Dole the senses a little bit, a little instant happiness, right? He's like, that's where I started my quest. But then he quickly moves to the works that he did. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He says, look at the house I've built. i built incredible things. Remember, the preacher here is, is really adopting the persona of Solomon, and many think that Solomon's the one writing this. And Solomon was the wisest and richest king of Israel. He'll build incredible things, an incredible palace. He's saying, look at my house. It's awesome. Admire the craftsmanship and extravagance. Don't only look at the house, though. Look at the gardens. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruits and trees. Gardens for ancient kings were a source of pride and prestige. Like, if you think of the ancient empire of Babylon, one of the most famous things they're known for are their hanging gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon. To have trees and fruits and gardens, that was a sign of extravagance. But he says, don't only really look at the gardens, look at the pool. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, this is several thousand years ago. To get water to a palace, which was usually on the higher parts of land, took incredible wealth and ingenuity. And this dude built pools just to water his trees. He's trying to say, look at the extravagance of my home. Look how much I I indulged myself. Not only that, and had slaves who, look at my money. Says I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herd and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. He says I was rich in Solomon's day. And so what he's describing is essentially, I had an incredible business. I had incredible wealth build up. And when we think of the amount of money, and we see in scripture the amount of money that Solomon had, he was one of the richest men out of this for fun. That's who he is. He says, not only that, look at this, look at my music room, right? I also gathered from my, uh, sorry, halfway through verse 8, I got singers, both men and women. Like the dude had his own choir, to just play his walk-up song whenever he wanted. And then he takes us to the grotto. And he says, And I had many concubines in the delight of the children of man. Like an ancient Hugh Hefner, he did not hold back from his pursuit of sexual pleasure. And he gives us the summary in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired it did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." It's like I was at the top of my game. I had it all, and I didn't hold back. Have you ever had one of those moments where you like, just find yourself seeing something and kind of wanting it? Like I was just recently uh, up on at Silver Lake Dunes on, on the west side of the state, and I got the opportunity with a buddy to rent a, a dune buggy and to go out and ride. And we stopped for one moment and I was standing there and I was with his daughter and another guy came back with an even better dune buggy, like the one he owned, and he like comes and rips this crazy circle around us and flies off. And she's standing right there and she was like, man, I'd, I'd love to have that. And I thought to myself, yeah, I would too. That'd be pretty sweet. Like you ever have those moments, like you see something and you're like, that would be awesome to have. This dude never had those moments. You know why? He just bought them. He was like, yeah, I just got the dune buggy. Whatever I wanted, whatever my eyes saw, that's what I went after. He essentially says, I indulge myself to my heart's content. And yet here's the conclusion that he draws in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was heaven and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He considers everything, indulges himself in all the pleasures that he can, and yet he comes back to the same conclusions he's drawn before, that it's all vanity. Remember, we said that that word in the Hebrew is the word hevel. It means smoke or wind. It's his metaphor for life. He said, living a life of pleasure, it's like trying to herd the wind, that there's no gain in it, there's no profit for a life without God, right? He, he's looking and taking the things of pleasure, and he's saying, it's not helping me. For all the things I tried to buy, I still couldn't grasp life. I couldn't get a hold of it. It was fleeting and flying about me. He essentially asked the question that I want to wrestle with a bit today, which is why is pleasure so short-lived? If we make pleasure the goal of life, why is it that pleasure just always seems so short-lived? He's not denying pleasure, that there are genuine moments of life where we enjoy good things. We've all experienced those moments. The pleasure of a good day's work, the pleasure of friends, the pleasure of the hobbies we like, the pleasure in beauty. What he's saying is, that when we pursue pleasure, it doesn't provide the ultimate meaning and the good life he'd hoped for. It's Hevel. Pleasure is short-lived. Why, why does he come to this conclusion? Well, he actually gives us some, reader, some reasons later on in his writing as we see it. The first thing he, he says is, Pleasure short lived because the pleasures of the world never fully satisfy. He actually comes back to this idea in chapter 5 and kind of wrestles with some of the reality of wealth and prestige and pleasure. And this is what he says at one point in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He essentially says, No matter how much I pursued pleasure, no matter how much money I pursued, it was never enough. I couldn't get it. There was always more. It just never fully satisfied. I heard our Algonac pastor, Dan Stewart, say, pleasure has a way of promising more than it can produce. That's pleasure. It always promises satisfaction. If you get the next promotion, if you get the next phone, if you get the next experience, if you get the next relationship, then you'll be satisfied and yet it never produces. You get the phone and the latest one comes out. You get the promotion and the income goes up and you still want more. Satisfaction is always elusive when it's rooted in pleasure. It's like trying to grab onto smoke. But the second reason that he thinks that the pursuit of pleasure is Hevel is that the pleasures of the world are temporary. Just a few verses later in 5, verse 15, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing, for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the win? The well-known preacher John Stott once said, Life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness so we would be wise to travel light, we will take nothing with us. For all that we gain, for all the pleasure that we experience, at some point it ends. At some point the vacation stops. At some point your strength starts to fail. At some point your memory starts to fade. At some point your life is over and you take nothing with you. And pleasure feels meaningless in that reality. And then finally, he reminds us that part of the reason why pleasure is so meaningless in the pursuit of it is that at the end of the day, the pleasures of the world are defined by ourselves. And when we define pleasure by ourselves, it's insufficient and destructive. I mean, notice how much Solomon focuses on himself. I made this, I did this, I achieved it, I worked hard. I toiled. I got to the place. I indulged myself. And yet, at the end of the time, he says, it's vanity. It's hevel. It's like chasing the wind. When you live a life of do what makes you happy, at the end of the day, it still just results in a life of dissatisfaction. That's what the preacher wants to remind you of that if you live your best life defined by you, at the end of the day, it just becomes meaningless. And yet, this is the lie, we're sold time and time again. Do what makes you happy. Find yourself. Follow that. And at the end of the day, what is being packaged to us is just a worldview of hedonism. Don't think this is just something that comes from the outside. This is often stuff that's packaged inside the church. Just use God to find your best life. Find God to discover your destiny. Follow God and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And we warp that into defining those realities by us. And if you look around the Christian landscape, you see this message all over the place. You, you, you. There was a book that came out a couple years ago that was pretty influential in many ways in the Christian world that reached top-selling charts. It was called Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. You might have heard of it. And she wrote this book essentially to, mostly to target women to say, you can do it, you can achieve, you can go after what you want. In fact, her key line in the phrase is, you and only you are responsible for who you become and how happy you are. She later says, you should be the very first of your priorities. She falls under the label of Christian self-help, which I personally think is an oxymoron, but it's the message that's being sold. You, you define it, your best life. Slap a little Jesus on there, but it's still you. And at the end of the day, what's being sold underneath is hedonism. She actually reveals it later in the book. She talks in one part about her dream, and she says this, I'm a big fan of displaying visuals inside my closet door to remind me every single day of what my aim is. Here's the goal, here's what I'm going after. Currently taped to my door, the cover of Forbes featuring self-made female CEOs, a vacation house in Hawaii, and a picture of Beyonce, Obvi. What's underneath? It's pleasure. That's what it is. It's my achievement, my dream house, what I want. And when I get that, then I'll be satisfied. And it's hogwash. It doesn't matter if I leave my husband and my marriage in the wake, as she's divorced now. It doesn't matter the pain it might bring other kids or my kids. It doesn't matter what happens to someone else. It's my pleasure and my happiness. And the preacher says, no, nah, not going to find it there. When you pursue pleasure as the defining aspect of your life, it doesn't satisfy. Not only that, it's a self-defeating philosophy. If you pursue pleasure and I pursue pleasure, and at some point our desire for pleasures bump up against each other, who wins? Well, if I win, then you don't experience the most pleasure in your life. So you don't get to achieve the good life and the fulfillment of your dreams. If you win, it's the same for me. If we're all pursuing pleasure defined by us, at some point we just get into a rat race of craziness where we're just stomping all over each other, trying to get to the top, and who cares who we crush in the way. Welcome to America. It's how we live. And it's killing us. It reminds me of God's prophetic challenge to his people in Jeremiah 2.13 where he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We've forsaken where joy really comes from, and we've sought to find joy in all the pleasures of the world, and the preacher comes along and he says, you do that, it's meaningless. You'll never find what your heart is after. And at some point you go, well, then what do we do? If doing what makes me happy isn't the answer, if pursuing pleasure doesn't bring about living the best life, what do I do? Do I just deny pleasure then? And some philosophies come along and say that. Buddhism will teach you what you need to do is detach yourself from your desires through meditation and practice, get to a point where you don't desire anything, then you won't experience any pain, and at some point you'll transition to nirvana, which is nothingness. That sounds encouraging. So maybe we deny our pleasure. Remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is written with a vision for what life looks like when you remove God from the equation. When you get to the end of the book, which we'll come back to in a few weeks, he puts God back into the equation. So what we've done each week is we've looked at these different searches, as we've tried to say, this is what life looks like without God in the equation, and this is what life looks like when you put God back into the equation. And so what do we do? What does the Scriptures teach us about how we think about meaning in life, especially when it comes to pleasure, with God back in the equation? What the Scriptures remind us time and time again is that God is good. God is good. That one of the defining characteristics of God's character is his goodness. And because God is good, the definition of good, all, every source of pleasure and satisfaction is found ultimately in him. That pleasure isn't the problem, it's what we pursue in pleasure. And what scriptures teach us is that because God is good, ultimate pleasure, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy is found in him. This is why the psalmist would come along and he would say, you make me known to me the path of life in Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forever. See, what the Bible holds out to you is the potential within God is an experience of joy that is full. Not that's temporary, that's at the peak, that's at the ultimate. And not only that, it holds it out for eternity. It says, pleasure in God is not temporary, it's eternal. It's not just this life, it's everything. It's all of eternity in Him. That God is the source of pleasure and joy. He is what is to be pursued And that our desire for pleasure is ultimately found in Him. Even the good things that He gives us. And He does give us good experiences of joy. That's why Psalm 107 would say He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. God created pleasure. He wants you to experience those good moments of pleasure. But with Him at the center. They're meant to draw you back to Him. Those good gifts that you get, like a good day's work, those good gifts that you get of a good dinner with friends, the good day that you get with intimacy with your spouse, those are meant to take that goodness and to turn it back to the one who gave it to you and say, God, you're the source of this. You're where my joy is found. You're the one who provides what my heart ultimately longs for. The desire for pleasure is not wrong. It's that we're looking for it in all the wrong places. Only God can provide what your heart longs for when it comes to pleasure. We search for joy in temporary things when what God offers us is eternal things. That's why theologian Tim Tester says, one of our problems is that we think only of moments. In the moment, we think the pleasures of sin or the world are real, and the joy of God is insubstantiable and distant. But in truth, it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. See, what scriptures point us to towards time and time again is that the pursuit of pleasure is the pursuit of a life of infinite joy in God. That this is what is offered to us to enjoy God forever and find the good life and meaning and purpose that our hearts long for because God is good. He's good. This is what Jesus offered when he was here on earth. In John chapter 4, we recount the story of Jesus traveling through the area of Samaria and Jesus stops at a well and his disciples leave him and a woman comes to the well and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she basically says, man, if if you're a Jew and you're asking me a Samaritan for a drink, I'm not even sure you know what you're asking. And Jesus basically says, well, if you knew what I would offer, you would ask me and I would provide something else. This is actually what he says in verse 13 to the woman. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, speaking of the water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, notice how the woman responds. She said, sir, give me this water, right? Isn't that what we want? Like, yes, give me the water that satisfies my soul. Give me the joy that I long for so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in 16. He says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said to me is true. And then she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. right?" So Jesus says, hey, I'm offering. I'm offering infinite joy. I'm offering eternal life. I'm offering what your heart longs for. And she's like, I want that. And Jesus says, well, first you're going to have to get up the things you've been looking for joy in. You see, this woman had fallen into a place of just repeated relationship after repeated relationship thinking, man, if I can just get the next guy, the next guy, that is what will satisfy my heart. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm what satisfies your heart. You see, what he reminds her here is that God is a well that won't run dry. That God is the fountain of living water. He is what we desire. And the problem is not our desire. The problem is that we've settled less than the infinite desire that God has put inside of us. C.S. Lewis makes this point in his well-known sermon, The Weight of Glory. He writes this about our desire. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. He's saying desire isn't the problem. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted, Creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, what Jesus is offering to you is infinite and eternal joy. and yet we settle for the pleasure of the computer screen that I look at or the relationship that I have or the next drink or hit I can take. We're too easily pleased. We too much define our desire by the things of the world, and then we're left constantly feeling dissatisfied, thirsty, desiring more for the next drink, the next thing. Jesus says, stop looking in these empty cisterns. I have the water you desire. I have eternal life. Come to me. You see, when we come and encounter Jesus, God changes our desires. He changes it to desire not the things of the world, but to desire him as the source of our life. And that's when we begin to experience the joy and meaning that our lives and hearts long for. What the preacher wants to remind us today is stop. Stop pursuing the things that don't satisfy you. Don't sacrifice infinite joy for the next quick fix. I mean, that's what we do. You guys ever watch the, there was a documentary several years ago called Super Size Me. You ever watch that? Morgan Spurlock, he spends 30 days essentially deciding he's only going to eat McDonald's food. That's it, for 30 days. And he's like, whatever they ask him to supersize him, this is when they back, when they still supersize, he'd take it. And so for 30 days, he does this experiment. I don't know if you've ever watched it, I can't make it through. I I literally can only watch snippets of it. Because at some point you like watch his body start to deteriorate, and eat itself. His liver starts to shut down. He gains like 25 pounds in 30 days. And at some point you're like, bro, just eat a salad. Like give it up. And I've been a pastor long enough in the church to watch Christian after Christian indulge themselves on the things of the world. They come back time and time again and be like, yeah, Jesus, I know you're there, but man, I really like this experience. I really like my money. I really like my prestige. God looks at us and says, don't you get it? That's not it. Stop killing yourself when infinite joy is on the line. Stop pursuing the things of the world when I have what you need. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, and they've sought the things that won't satisfy them. And the preacher says this morning, don't do that. Come back to Jesus put your faith and trust in him. He offers the life your heart longs for. He's the only one that can let you live your best life because it's a life not found in you, it's a life found in him. That's what you were created for. And what he offers to you this morning is a life of infinite joy. My encouragement is don't settle for anything less. Give it all to Jesus and follow him with all you have and find the joy in his presence that will last for eternity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I stand in this moment acknowledging the truth of your word that you are good, that you are the fountain of eternal joy and life and that you offer that to us through your son. Yet I confess for myself and my brothers and sisters here that we are far too easily pleased. That we so easily turn to the things of this world to find the satisfaction that can only be found in you. It's a problem of our human fallen hearts. so I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways that I look to the things of the world instead of looking to you. I confess that to you this morning. We confess that together. And I pray, God, right now that you would continue to convict our hearts of what those things are, that you would allow us to repent, remind us that you forgive us in Christ, and let us turn back to Jesus. Let us have that thirst again that thirst that the psalmist cries out when he says, oh God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, give us that thirst, that desire to pursue you. And in that, let us see you for who you are and be satisfied. Let us turn from the things of the world. Let them grow strangely dim in our eyes and let the glory of Jesus Christ shine brightly and let it satisfy our hearts so that we might glorify you with our lives. Even now while we sing, would you do that work? Would you set our attention on you and would you do a work in us to be reminded of your goodness? Reminded of the eternal life that you are and that is in you, and to aim our lives and our hearts towards that. I invite you to move by the power of your spirit right now. And I ask that in the good name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.